Hello and welcome to the Morning Drive podcast. Uh, this episode I sat down with Stephen Doby, who is a freelance motoring journalist. Uh, his kind of back catalogue of work includes Evo magazine, which is quite a cool one, uh, amongst other amazing things that I'm not going to even try and list here because we talk about it in the podcast, so there's no point. Um, as I think it's quite relevant. Stephen does write for Verka magazine and I've been trying to kind of plug them where I can and this is my podcast so I'm allowed to say what I want. Um, I'm going to tell you to go and look at Verka magazine. It's W-E-R-K-E but it's pronounced Verka and Will, the editor of that magazine and the creator, is in the next episode of the podcast after this one and we talk all about that. So here is my plug for them. They did a very kind thing for me, so I'm returning the favour. And this is the episode with Stephen Doby, who is a writer for Verka magazine. So on with the podcast. I've hit record now. Okay. Just because these are quite a casual thing anyway. So yeah. As we're having a casual chat, we might as well start recording it. Sure. Um, so f- for the listener, I'm here with Stephen, is it Doby or Dobby? Dobby. Dobby. So your your accent's different to mine, so now I still don't know if I got it right or not. Yeah, that's the problem. I find this every time I try to sort of check into a hotel <laughs> or do any sort of driving license check, everyone gets it wrong. Uh, well, I've probably already cocked it up. It's so not like the house elf. Right. Is it like the end of Adobe? Yes. Right. There we go. There we go. Um, so there's only one piece of structure to these podcasts and that is the question of who are you and what do you do? So I'm Stephen Dorby. I'm a car journalist, motor and writer, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've written, you know, I spent a stint at Evo magazine, then a stint at Top Gear magazine and now I'm freelance writing for all sorts of people. Various different magazines and we currently have magazines and model cars and posters and prints all around us, it's a proper little car cavern. Um, I'd say cavern, not in a way that says that your flat is small, but in the fact that it's full of cars. It's a bit too small for the amount of magazines I've got in it, I think. Um, I think I can probably count at least 200 in this room. But they're yeah. all in boxes and neat. It's not like a stack of 200 magazines. You've not seen under the table. Oh, right, yeah, is that where the stack is? The You've run out of cube space. To... I did try to sort of kind of recycle some sort some out the other day but I just get too sentimental and too attached so I've got like all the ones I've written in which are sort of in the in the right okay. but then just handfuls of you know road rats octanes magnetos all that sort of stuff down here yeah I've got I just to, like magazines I've got to get some more shelves because road rats and magnetos are thick quarterlies the Ikea shelves have started bowing yeah from the weight of them so I need to figure a solution to that yeah. problem it's probably spend a hundred pound on one of their little boxes for them but I don't want to spend 100 quid on a effectively a really nice cardboard box. Yeah. Um, so what got you into journalism then? How did this all start for you? It's a good question, really. I mean, I think like most of us, I loved cars since, well, you know, I can't even remember when it, when it began. I was probably two years old. Hmm. Didn't inherit that from family. It wasn't, you know, wasn't one of those things. I just, yeah, from the age of about two, was obsessed and read car magazines as a kid. Probably read them more than I read books. Right. I've got this memory of being in sort of a hospital waiting room with my nana and she nicked a copy of What Car from the table and sort of slipped it in a handbag and I went home and kind of <laughs> obsessed about all the stats in the back of that. Amazing. Um, 
Yeah, and then when I was when I was at school, loved English, loved writing more than anything else. That's where I felt, you know, most at home, I suppose. And studied journalism at university, and everything just sort of came together. Um, I didn't really know from a young age I wanted to be a car journalist, but as soon as I realised I did, it just made perfect sense. Yeah, me. yeah. Well, it's, it's credit to you for following it through and kind of following your passion. Really, like I have been on a roller coaster of jobs until I kind yeah. of found what. I enjoy doing and designing and creating things and being around cars is the thing that I'm passionate about. But for for you, you're obviously like, right, I like cars. Oh, I like writing. Oh, I study that. Oh, now I'm a writer. And then you're just kind of going, right, let's keep going. You've described exactly what happened in my brain (laughs) in about the middle of my second year of uni. Right, fair. (laughs) Um, So where did you go? So obviously you did journalism at uni. What was your first step into the writing world? So in my final year of uni, I basically, I can't remember how this came about, but I started applying for work experience at different car magazines. I think it might have been a module on the course that we had to do. Right. And so I fired off emails and phone calls at sort of Evo, at Car, at Auto Car, and all of these sorts of titles. And Car Magazine was the first one that came back. And I went down there, it would have been about the middle of my third year of uni, my final year, went and did a week of unpaid work experience and it was during the Detroit Motor Show so there was basically not really anybody in the office there was only a couple of us and everyone's like filing reports back from Detroit and I was writing up lots of news releases that of the cars that were being revealed there and I was getting quite a lot of stuff published on the website which was obviously felt quite good to have credits on yeah I was getting bylines sort of straight away which was really nice um and from then on I basically once I realized that was a good way of making contacts learning how to write having a writing critiqued by the people around around us. I just, yeah, applied applied everywhere I could be. And, yeah, over the next few months, might have skipped the odd lecture so that I could instead spend a week down at, you know, down at Evo, down at Autocar, these sorts of places. And as a result, basically got my job at Evo that way. When I, once I finished uni, I had a couple of months at home doing a part-time job in a call centre, which, right. which I hated. Everybody hates that job. <laughs> I don't think there's many that, despite all of like EE's adverts going, we're part of the team. Nobody feels exactly where I worked. It was, it was T-Mobile at the oh, time, I but see. EE now, yeah. But it does mean I've got lots of sympathy for call centre staff when I need to ring up about something because yeah, I same. know exactly the kind of person I'm speaking to. Yeah, and you, you kind of go, I understand that this is a crappy situation and I'm I'm not blaming you personally. Let's tackle this problem together. And you have a little bit more like empathy. Yeah. Oh, it's a person at the end of the phone and they didn't do this to you. Yeah, precisely. Whereas a lot of people are like, oh, you're the face of EE now. It's like, yeah, call up Kevin Bacon and have a moan at him as well. <laughs> it's... It's good to hear that um, that empathy comes along with it. Like I didn't work in a, a call centre, but I've worked in like being customer facing and dealing with people when they've got an, a perception of a, the company that you work for. Yeah, and it's always like de-escalation techniques on the on the forefront. And I did all this like after I worked in the secure hospitals, so it was like using all the techniques that I'd used to like de-escalate serious incidents to calm someone down about their bloody like broadband or something. It's like, it's okay, we'll get through this together, we'll figure it all out, let's just go through and we'll tackle the problem as a team and it like calms it down. I was like, I didn't expect to be using these skills again. I thought once I'd left the hospitals, those skills were specifically for that environment and they're not. So you've probably got the patience of a saint having worked in a call centre. <laughs> yeah, but I remember all the time I was working there, I'd be sort of, I'd maybe do three days a week there. That was up in Sunderland, where I come from. But 
I'd then be driving down and doing a few days at Evo and then driving back up from a call centre shift. And it was like quite a hectic time, but... I bet. So the call centre was effectively paying your petrol money to get to... Is Evo London back then? They were sort of Northamptonshire. Oh, right. Okay, my neck of the woods now then. Um, so that must have been like all of your money gone straight into the petrol tank. And more. I mean, <clears throat> I finished paying my student loan... I think it was the middle of last year, and I think quite a lot of it probably went on, on petrol. Oh, God. It was when there was an outcry that had gone over, I think it was, petrol had just gone over a pound a litre at the time, and that I was a big that. outcry. Yeah, I remember Top Gear doing a segment on it on in their little news bit, and it's like, yeah. it's more than a bottle of water. <laughs> that was the, the comparison they made. I paid £2.12 for diesel at the services the other day. Wow. Yeah, fortunately not my car or my card. But uh, yeah, that's the point we're at is £2.12 and then I needed to fill the Toyota up and it was £1.70. I was like, oh my God, it's so cheap. <laughs> but far cry from the £1 that we got down to in lockdown. And it was an outcry. Where, you know, this would have been, what, 2008? It was an outcry that was a pound a litre. But, but yeah, and then got offered the job at Evo and haven't really ever looked back. So how long were you at Evo for? I was there six years. Right, okay. So 2008 to 2014? 2014, yeah. Um, so you'll have been there at the same time as Henry? Yeah, so I, li- I listened to Henry's episode and I guess my path into Evo was quite similar to his. I was going to say the same, to be fair. Um, his was, a uh, did uni, went to Evo. Uh, Evo is basically like a little collection of uni students trying to figure out how to write. <laughs> that was it. With... To the point that he recommended the B&B I should stay in, this little place called Duckmire, because Evo used to be in this sort of tiny little village called Wollaston, and yeah, Henry recommended the B&B to stay in. And it was this incredible, it was basically a cottage with this sort of sweet old lady who made amazing bed and breakfasts every morning. Oh, fantastic. These are the stories that really kind of connect people as well. Like, it's not just that, oh yeah, we worked at Evo. It's like, oh, and we stayed at the bed and breakfast, and it was that, oh, you remember Marjorie, and all that kind of thing, which is like the fun part of, especially the car world, is all these little interconnected pieces that... Um, that make all these fun stories and they they give you something fun to look to look back on. Um, so what what was your kind of highlights at Evo? What were the most exciting things that you did? Oh, that's a very good question. The car of the years were always absolutely amazing. I remember my first one was up on the Isle of Skye in 2009. I just missed out on car of the year 2008. It was basically about the week that I joined. Right. So I missed out on that book. Yeah, 2009 on Sky was, was incredible. I'd never been to the Isle of Sky and just... Well, it's effectively a big racetrack, really, isn't it? It's, it's not that big and there's not that many people there and the roads are amazing. I just remember that it was the drive there that was absolutely incredible, up the west coast of Scotland through Glencore. I'd just never been up that far, even though I'm from the north and Scotland is just over the border. I'm probably about an hour from the Scottish border where I grew up, but... We just never really went to Scotland, certainly not up the West Coast. It just yeah, seemed yeah. so far away. Um, yeah. So what cars were on that trip? Well, I, at the time, I ran a Clio 200 Cup long-termer, nice. my first ever long-termer and still probably my best ever long-termer. Nothing has ever really topped that. Um, so that went up there. That's what I drove up in. Uh, what else did we have? I remember the Ferrari California was there, Noble M600. Nice. Uh, GT3, it would have been, I think, 997.2. Yeah, yeah. And Lotus Evora, which won. That's a, a pretty interesting mix as well. I imagine the Lotus and the Noble were terrifying. I wasn't in... Sh- that, that was the thing, because of my age, so I would have been 
22 at the time. I was only insured on about half the cars there. So, <laughs> yeah, the 911 and the Norble and all the really good stuff was, was out of bounds. But the sort of the regular, I'll use inverted commas there, the regular stuff we had there was still still incredible. Because the Clio was, I think that finished top three or certainly top five. Uh, the MX-5 that I just oh, had yeah. a facelift. It was Mark III facelift MX-5. That was a really good car. I tried to buy one of them and uh, got didn't get approved for the finance. <laughs> I was like 19 or something. I was like, yeah, I'm earning 17 grand a year. I can afford a 10 grand car. <laughs> like an absolute Apparently moron. No, same with the VX220. So I tried to buy a VX220. Got turned down for the 10 grand loan. And I was like, oh, I'll try and have a look at an MX-5 then. And... Uh, yeah, I got turned down for that. Probably because they'd seen I got turned down for the loan for the VX220. Um, so yeah, it was it was on the list of, oh, this would be great. And then, as it seems to be a weird thing when you go and look at um, cars in a dealership, they put like three quids worth of fuel in, send you down yeah. a dual carriageway and back, and they go, so what do you think? I'm like, I don't know, I've not driven it. <laughs> I've got to make this big financial decision based on three minutes down a dual carriageway and back. What are you on about? <laughs> um, but yeah. What didn't get that anyway. We, Mark II Focus RS, that was there. Oh, when they'd gone a little bit boxier then. That was, yeah, the five-cylinder one. Because the Mark ones, there was one at Silverstone at the NEC that sold for like 65 grand. Completely. <laughs> Stuff's just gone mad, hasn't it? It's insane. Like, I think a couple of the Mark IIs, I think there was the, remember how they did the black, 500 black edition? Yeah, ones. RS500, I think. Was um, <clears throat> I think one of those went for like 80 grand. For a focus, <laughs> like, but it's the same with old escorts and that they were the focus equivalent of the day, and they're yeah. all stupid money as well. Um, so what other kind of gems from Evo can you pluck out of your memory? I think the very best thing I did there was a group test down on the Stelvio Pass. First time I visited the Stelvio, I've been back a couple of times since, basically after seeing how great it was on this test. I've yeah. I'll make sure all of my holidays go on in the style of your. Um, it was, so the issue was based around sound. So there was loads of different group tests and features and they were all based on noise. And we had QR codes in the magazine as well before anyone... So you could hear the... Well before COVID when QR codes became sort of fashionable. <laughs> and yeah, the idea was that you would scan each feature and be able to hear the noises. And it had sort of a feature on every cylinder count. So I think we must have started with the Morgan three-wheeler and gone up. In this group test, it was a 911 Cabrio. It was Carrera GTS. Right. When that first came out. We had R8 V8 Spider, Aston V8 Vantage Roadster, and an Alpha 8C Spider, which I think came out of Alpha Romeo's museum and was driven driven up to the Stelvio by somebody from the museum. Wow. How come they had three V8s? I think it was sort of predominantly a V8 feature right, or okay. an 8-cylinder feature but we had a 6-cylinder car in as well oh so. ok so they weren't going to go like here's 2 here's 3 and they had like an Igo or something tagging along I think from memory that R8 V8 Spider had just come out and I think that was maybe driven to the test from the press launch Right. So I think one of the journalists flew out to the launch drove that down to the Stelvio and then the other three cars were sort of built around that right I'm with you interesting mix and was that back when, like, there was an interest in, right, everything's going digital now. Like, magazines are going to be digital. We're not going to have paper magazines anymore. How do we make it more interactive? And it was then, certainly the period when people were really starting to think about that and really starting to kind of try and have big ideas on 
on what to do. You know, print runs, you know, the circulation of mags was starting to shrink. Yeah. No matter how hard we tried. So I think, yeah, it was the period of trying to think of how do we keep magazines relevant? How do we hand over to a digital future or live alongside a di- digital future? Yeah, yeah. Because I remember it was always like, you can now get it on your iPad and you can swipe across and it follows like a piece of And you try and use it and it'd be like useless. And it would be much easier just to have a magazine in your hand rather than this whole like forcing a digital thing to do an analog function, like yeah. change pages. But you look at something like Driver's Republic, that was what, 2008 when, you know, Dick and Jethro and, and Harris set that up. You launch that now, that would be... That would be massive. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, just, it was just ahead of its time. I think lots of people around sort of, you know, the end of that decade were really starting to have big ideas about what to do, and some of it was ahead of its time. Yeah, and I think if Driver Republic came out recently, it'd probably be the Drive Tribe equivalent. Um, and I think that's a, a difficult market in itself. So the guys at, like, Roadster have built an app for it, and every time I share about it and we've done some work together, everyone's like, oh, what's this? I'm like... It's specifically for car enthusiasts. Oh, I can just do that on Instagram. And it's like, no, it's got all these functions. Yeah, but I have to change apps then. Yeah. And then it's really hard, even now, to push something digital. And it seems to be like a an ongoing challenge that the car enthusiast community just doesn't want to do anything more to engage. They're like, oh, I can see the pictures and the videos, and I've got YouTube for this and Instagram for that, and Facebook does events, so I've got all the things covered. And these guys are coming along and going, here's a central place. Yeah, maybe I'll have a look at it. And it kind of leans in that um, maybe what those guys were doing, if they'd have timed it alongside the launches of kind of when Facebook started blowing up and Instagram started blowing up, it might have led the way forward for it. Um, But it's interesting to see the ideas that were coming about at that time, really. Yeah, I think people were, you know, really thinking big and... Yeah, and some of it worked, some of it didn't, but... Well, the YouTube thing was huge, especially for, like, Chris Harris with Chris Harris on cars and things like that. Um, Someone was having a joke the other day that Harris has been a little bit critical of the influencer. And they were like, but he was the first one. Like, he did it first. He did Chris Harris on cars, he got that Gallardo, he did it. And now he's on the other side of the coin. He's like, oh, influencers and all this. Um, and it just, I can't remember where it was. But I guess he was rooted in journalism. You, you know, he was writing for Autocar yeah. long before he was doing any of that stuff. Yeah, and that's probably where his almost like bias comes from, even though he kind of started the influencer idea or he was at the start of it. He obviously did all of his written work, and I knew about him from Piston Heads before I knew about anything else. Yeah. Um, I, I can remember him, yeah, six six twelve for a bit. And he basically just went, here's what it's like to own a Ferrari. And I just followed that thread. And that was how I learned who he was. And then when he popped up on Top Gear, I was like, oh my God, it's the Piston Heads guy. And then all my mates were like, no, he's got a YouTube channel. <laughs> Have you not even seen it? I was like, no, finding that out now. And it's it's interesting to see how journalism in the car world has diversified as well. Like with Henry and Car Fiction and Alex Goy and Car Fiction, all that kind of thing. And obviously Chris and... Chris Harris on cars and the writing almost seemed to fall into the shadows and it's had a real resurgence recently. Yeah. Um, have you found that your kind of workloads have started growing again as it started to get this resurgence? Has it, has it really blossomed for you? That's a good question. I mean, 
I've only been freelance. I went freelance at the beginning of this year, so it's still, I guess, a relatively new thing for me. Yeah. But there's been a good amount of work out there and, you know, really diverse titles. I mean, Will Beaumont's magazine, Verk, that's been really good fun to work on. I've been calling that work. And then you said it the other day. I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's German, isn't it? Like, the, it's not a German mag, but the word is German. And I was like, oh, I hope I haven't said that to Will directly to his face. Or, or should I call him Vil when I see him <laughs> next? <laughs> it's like Vil from Verk. he will be like, oh, well, can't have it both ways, pal. <laughs> I'm absolutely going to do that going forward. Now. He's, he's agreed to come on the podcast, actually. So I'm going to definitely do that on Perfect. the podcast as well, just to really ramp it up. You know what? He'll love it. He'll absolutely he'll lean so. into that. He'll probably... He'll, He'll wear Lederhosen. Oh, that would be hilarious because it's audio only, so he'll have worn it for nothing other than for me going, he's wearing Lederhosen, which I could say anyway. I could say he's not wearing anything at all. <laughs> like, this is a really awkward one. Um, I was actually, I was chatting to him recently and I said, because he, he was very kind and allowed me an ad space in the mag. He's like, we've got a bit of space. Do you fancy sending us something over? And if we could fit it in, we'll squeeze it in. Um, and it, there was fortunately a bit of space, which is... Kind of my first printed ad, yeah, which is really nice. It's a really nice moment. So I said to him yesterday, I think it was, oh, I'll, in like repaying the favour, do you want to be the first ever sponsor of the podcast? And all twelve people will hear it. <laughs> so it's it's nice that there's this interconnectedness between the groups. Like I know you and him separately. It's not like I've known you from him or him from you. It's it's always fun how it it's all interconnected and you find all the the little connections. That's yeah. a huge part of what I do is, you know, everybody's, we're all on the same kind of page almost. We all love cars and we all love the community and we all love coming together around our passions. Let's just make it a little bit more at the forefront of the mind when that happens. Um, but car journalism, there's a lot of people doing it and yet it's still quite a close-knit industry. We all sort of do know each other and that's really, really nice. Yeah, and... As a, an outsider that kind of has little peaks inside every so often, it is quite a, it's a little bit daunting. It's like, oh, it's almost like a little boys club. Like, it's like, oh, we're the journalists. You're like, oh, can I, can I have a look? Oh, have you written anything? Oh, maybe. Mm, come back when you've got more writing credit. And... Yeah, it's not, not like that at all. <laughs> I'll have to keep writing stuff and hopefully uh, be invited into the Twitter group. Because there is a, oh, what is it? The Southern Writers Group, I think it is. Yeah, there's several of those that are sort of dotted around the country. I think it's one of those things more aimed at sort of regional newspaper writers, that kind of thing. Right, I see. Because um, I, I got approached when we were at um, Coffees and Cars on Sunday by a small independent magazine that do their cover was like Group C cars. And uh, we were chatting away and the guy's business card was on there and it was like part of the Writers Guild or something like that. Um, it's... it's it's interesting that these little associations and clubs are still quite prevalent and it's not kind of fallen away as things have progressed into a digital age. It's a, it's still quite a nice way to hold on to that, that tradition. Yeah. Um, so back to you, rather than my ramblings, you started at Evo, Evo until 2014, and then what came next? How come Evo finished and what replaced it? Uh, so yeah, I moved to Top Gear. Um, yeah, it sort of came about through a few reasons, really. Um, Evo, it was owned by Dennis Publishing, and they gave you a six-week sabbatical when you'd worked there five years. Right. And I used mine to sort of go away for a couple of months. I never did a gap year or any travelling like that when I was younger. I never really aspired to. It's sort of me and my friend group, that wasn't really on our radar. But I used my sabbatical to 
go away to sort of Australia and New Zealand and stuff. And just had like a full two months off work and just kind of came back, came back home wanting a bit of change really and wanting something new. Um, I guess they've scrapped that program now. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, they all leave after we give them yeah, a bit I think of a, a break. Few people did do a similar thing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the opportunity at Top Gear sort of just coincided with me having that sort of mindset, I suppose. So the two slotted in quite nicely and ended up being there even longer, ended up being there over seven years. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And was it a lot of, was there a lot of similarities or was it a big change? Like, how did you find the difference between the two? It's sort of a mixture of all of those, really. The biggest change was having to move to London, which is not something I ever imagined I'd do. In the first few months I worked at Top Gear, I still tried to commute from, I was living in Stamford at the time in Lincolnshire, and I tried to commute. That's a long, like, Lincolnshire's miles away from anything. Even at Evo, you were miles away from Lincolnshire. (laughs) Yeah, so I sort of semi-reluctantly moved to London, but ended up living with Matt Bird, who... Worked at, works at Piston Heads. We got a, basically had the nerdiest flat chair in history when, <laughs> when we lived together. So that was really nice. So that was like, you know, I moved to London and then yeah, I think we lived together five years. And So yeah, that, that was sort of a big change. And because out of the Evo office, you were immediately in the countryside. The yeah, office yeah. was just beside Santa Pod and all the roads around there, they're ace. So if something cool came in, but you couldn't take it home for the night, you just pop out for a sandwich at lunch and have one of the best drives you'd had in in months. Top Gear in Shepherd's Bush. Right in the centre of London. London. Not so much. Um, But no, it was a cool place to work and just so much more scope about, you know, the topics we could write about. Right. You know, it ended up sort of driving tanks and big eight-wheeled daft off-roaders and the kind of stuff that Evo would never cover. So it was really fun to sample something new and to drive stuff I would never cover with evil. That's really interesting. Do you think that came about because the show was inherently quite broad in what it did? Or do you think if the show was how it originally was, where it's like, the specs on this car, are this, this, do you think they would have the magazine would have stayed as reined in? or do you, it's like My initial opinion would be that those two things went hand in hand. I think the two things have lived alongside each other and sort of fed off each other for a long time. So the TV show was older than the mag. The mag launched in the early 90s. But I think when it launched, it was far more directed at buying advice. It wasn't quite as serious as something like Wokkar, but yeah. it was much more at that end of the spectrum. But I guess, yeah, when the TV show became as mainstream as it, as it did... It became an entertainment show, really, yeah. didn't it? I guess the magazine <laughs> sort of morphed with it. But then what was really interesting is the time I was at... Top Gear covered quite a lot of change in the TV show team, but the magazine remained constant. So right. all the time people were maybe having doubts about the TV show, that was making making headlines. We just carried on doing what we did best. We just kept making making magazines, filling, filling the website. The website became ever bigger. We sort of relaunched the website right in the thick of of all the all of the TV show dramas. But you know, we became the constant. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, I think we, you know, majorly contributed to the brand. So even though people know the TV show best, I think the magazine and website are such an invaluable part of what Top Gear is. Yeah, I think it, it keeps that kind of core audience engaged and connected, doesn't it? While the the magazine the the show has been reasonably turbulent in 
what's going on and who's hosting it and this you know, the magazine's probably kept people in that like this is top gear magazine this is how it works and we're we're the the foundation that you can rely on kind of thing um it's funny i uh i found an article on top gear philippines oh, yeah. about myself by complete accident um and it was really bizarre like um i think i'd spotted a car my other half and i were on a walk and there was this car i can't remember what car it was and it was covered in crap like not like it had been sat for a while like it was covered in spoilers and stickers and it just looked awful I was like, oh, if you um, Google the number plate, any relevant photos tend to pop up. So I was like, look, we'll do it with my car. And I Googled my number plate. And then this Top Gear article popped up. I was like, oh my God, I'm on Top Gear in the Philippines, what of all places. So I sent that to the UK guys. I was like, fancy doing a UK thing? I'm UK-based. Got no reply, no responses on social media, nothing. I was like, what an odd thing. Like, your Filipino cousins are, are talking about stuff. And there's this disconnected... Um, relationship there but it was all because I'd spotted this awful car covered in crap and I I know people go oh respect all builds but this looked horrendous like you've wasted money on this not you've done anything to improve your car and uh, yeah this whole thing came about because of one crappy like Renault Megane or something in South End Um, but it's it's quite fun as what I do grows to find these little things happening that you have no idea about. Yeah, it's great that they're picking up on what you're doing. Yeah, it was uh, an article, it was purely like, is driving good for your mental health? And then it was like, this guy thinks so. And I was like, oh, perfect, they've hit the nail on the head. Um, But yeah, it's still a nut I haven't cracked. I get emails from the advertising team at Top Gear now. Uh, Quite recently that started. And I'm always like, just send it to the editorial team instead. It's way more interesting that way. Which happened with um, Evo, funnily enough. I wrote a piece in the lockdown about how to kind of look after your mental health as a car guy through lockdown. And it was kind of stuff like taking the government's advice and tailoring it to a car audience. So like no car spotting for your walk and that kind yeah. of thing. And um, I sent it to, to Henry Catchpole of all people. I was like, I'm, I've written this thing. I could just do some advice like... If it's crap, tell me it's crap. If I can improve it, please tell me where. Yeah. And he read it and went, actually, that's quite good. I'll send it to Evo. And it ended up on their website. Amazing. And the Evo advertising team, because they're like two separate teams, aren't they? Like the writing team yeah. and the advertising team don't really have anything to do with each other properly. I think maybe back in the 90s or something, you might all be in the same office in the same hub, but not yeah, so much it's, now. It's, I think it, because it's owned by, it's not Dennis anymore, that's all been swallowed up by another media group that owns Car Throttle. Um, that it's all like disconnected so I had this uh, advertising guy a couple of emails and a couple of phone calls he said do you want space space?" I can't afford it I'm too small maybe when I've grown maybe when this is full time and then that came out on the website and like the next day I got a phone call I see you've uh, had something published on our website do you want to advertise to a company I was like why why would I do that I've just got free advertising Maybe when I'm bigger, and if this goes really well, then maybe I can afford it. I've never been able to afford advertising space. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's quite a fun world to, to play in. I'm sure you're much more experienced in the nuances of how it all works than I am. Um, so how long were you at Top Gear for? So it was just over seven years. Oh, yeah, yeah. you did say. Sorry. Um, so that takes you to 20... 
basically Christmas last year was when I left. So you were there until you've gone freelance now? Yeah, when freelance at the beginning of this year. Right, I see. It felt like there was more time between 2014 and now. Um, so what, what prompted the change? All manner of things, really. I think it's where I'd always hoped to end up. Mm. I think I sort of realised early on that there's sort of two main career paths within car journalism. You either climb up the ranks and become an editor or an editor of, you know, a section of the magazine, or you go freelance. And I just love writing. It's the very best bit of the job. And at least this way, by being a freelance writer, I just write, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not managing a desk of people. I'm not... And that's not to say I might not do that in the future, and I might be open to doing that well, at some point. As the gets bigger, you can, uh, yeah. you can shoehorn your way in there. But yeah, I think I just love writing features, and this way, that's what I prioritise. It sounds like you're following your passion rather than following like the expectation of a career path, if that makes sense. like There's quite a lot of people that have fallen into that trap where they got into something that they loved and they worked up the ranks and then they find, oh, I'm not actually doing the thing that I love anymore. I'm managing people, which is not what I enjoyed doing. Um, so it's it's really great to see that you've almost kind of followed the thing rather than the career, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, this is the thing I enjoy doing. I'm going to follow that and I'll let that lead my my path. So how have you found it since, since going freelance? I've loved it. I've absolutely loved it. It's uh, it's a chance to write for new people I've not written for. It's like Motorsport Magazine has been a really fun fun one to write for. Um, but plenty of others, you know, made my debut in Autocar. I've been writing for The Intercooler, or, you know, various titles. And That's a really cool thing that sprouted out of, effectively, lockdown, wasn't it, The Intercooler start? Because it was Drive Nation originally. Yeah. Um, I think they probably encountered the Drive Nation guys that are doing the car calendar, which might have... So it's been an idea that's been brewing away in Dan's head for a long time. Me me and him are good friends, and I remember we... This would be, oh, maybe four or five years ago, you were sort of talking about the beginnings of the idea. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it's not quite sprung up out of nowhere, but I guess it's... But from a public perspective, it's kind of gone, oh, this thing exists now. And it, it, from my perspective of it, so it started not long after I'd started doing little bits and bobs for Tacona, it was like, oh, we're doing this thing. It's going to be like Instagram news pieces, which was really interesting to see. It's like image text, image text, image, and it's told a story across the, like, the 10 post limit. And then it's grown from there into like a proper online thing now. It's a really fully-fledged journalistic piece. It's not just a... Here is nine Instagram posts. We hope you like it. Please yeah. click and like, and maybe we'll get more followers. It's a proper, proper thing. Um, so, how big has your involvement in that been? It's just been a couple of features so far, um, right. but hopefully it'll continue, and I'll write sort of semi regularly for them. But it's just a case of our pitch pitch ideas to Dan and Andrew, and yeah. they sort of say yes to some, say no to some, and I'll go off and shoot the features. That's pretty interesting. So, as a freelancer, then. Um, how does well? How does that work? Like, what's the the way that work comes in? What's the way that you get specific features? Like, how does the the dynamic of being a freelance writer work? It's, I mean, dynamics exactly the word because it's it's sort of slightly different every time. 
I guess a lot of it is me coming up with feature ideas and pitching them to titles that I think they're relevant to. Um, but some of it is a magazine will have been offered an opportunity with a car and they simply need someone to write it. So they give me a call and I go off and do something that's kind of already prepared and already planned. Right, okay. And how long do you think it took for your name to be kind of known by enough of these industries and enough of these people to, for them to go, oh, we've got this thing, oh, we need to call Stephen. Like, did, is that a process that's built up from your time writing for Top Gear and Evo? I guess so. I mean, like a lot of people who are friends and contacts now, I'm probably even met when I was work experience when I was still at uni. I think that was the beginning of that process. Right, I see. Um, but then, yeah, just by being on launches and events for the last, what, 14 years? Yeah. Um, yeah, you just you just meet people and you make friends and you make contacts. And so when I went freelance, it was just a case of just making sure people knew. Yeah. And, you know, that was just like basically an Instagram post and a bit of... It sounds so easy when you put it like that. It's <laughs> like, just make sure people know that you write. And then there's so much of a... People have to believe in the quality of your work. It's not just a... I'm a it's not like I could post going, I'm a freelance writer. Hit me up if you need anything writing for you. Because people go, well, are you any good at it? Uh, yeah, come along to this press launch. You're our one guy on the scene and you're absolutely crap. No, thank you very much. Whereas there's so much of your reputation that comes with that. Like People aren't calling you just because they know that you can write. They call on you because they know you're a good writer and they can kind of depend on you to, to do a proper job and not just go, how is that this car launch? This car's very pretty. <laughs> it goes really quick. Like It's a proper thing. Um, and it's kind of a, a testament to your capabilities that, other outlets have that confidence in your in your skill set to give you that call and send you that way. But I guess it's them also knowing that I'm not going to miss the flight or I'm not going to turn up late or I'm not going to deliver the copy late. You know, they, they need to know that that stuff's going to be taken care of. Yeah, yeah, well. of course. Um, which is probably the that part of building your reputation to be dependable is probably the biggest amount of work that isn't work, if that makes sense. It's not a a thing that you can write down on a piece of paper and go, look, I, I caught all these flights on time <laughs> and I got all this copy on, on a deadline. It, that is your kind of reputation and that's probably what gets you into the, the different features and magazines and things like that, along with the ideas that you come up with and position. And I imagine it takes a lot of knowledge of what different magazines audiences are and what their styles are for you to be able to go right this would work here and this would work there like i could give you a really good brief for a road rat article because that's pretty much the only thing i read so i'm like if i can't write for road rat i'm bloody stuff <laughs> like um so how long does does that kind of process take for you you go i've got this idea and then do you flesh it out in a specific magazine in in mind or do you just kind of see where the idea takes you it totally varies yeah it really does vary i mean there's some ideas that are pitched sort of back in january which i still haven't quite managed to make happen you know sometimes you phone up to arrange a car in a particular place and it all just comes together really quickly and sometimes stuff you have to work on so yeah i'd say there's no no kind of firm answer to that really yeah making it really difficult for me to to like <laughs> go right i can do that because <laughs> It would be so much fun now that I'm getting more insightful into the industry to be able to go, right, I can lend my hand to that thing. Yeah. And then I, I meet someone that does it properly. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do that. It's, it's a big step to, to learn. I think, though, ultimately, if, you, if you're passionate about it, which you clearly are, then 
you know, you'll come up with ideas. Chances are, if you think something is a good idea and you would want to read it, then other people would as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have pigeonholed myself as the mental health and cars guy. So I've got to overcome that bridge if I want to do any writing work. Um, So if you were to speak to 21-year-old you back when you were at uni, is there anything you would have advised? Because obviously you followed the path that you wanted to follow. Um, what would you kind of say to make that easier for yourself? Wow, that is a deep question. It's a good you one, really, isn't it? You really are the mental health guy, aren't you? <laughs> um, I think just to be more confident. I think I've always struggled with confidence, actually. Um, th- I mean, not just throughout my career, but throughout my life. I think I've always you know, been a bit low on that. So maybe just to be more confident about myself and to doubt myself less. Uh, which is really hard to do. No matter how much someone tells you. Yeah, if somebody you, tells you to do that... You should be more confident. You're like, oh. oh, yeah, good idea. I haven't yeah. thought of that. You'd immediately be like, oh, right, okay, sorry. Yeah. You, you, you'd probably retract in yourself. Like, I, I've been reasonably... I'm oh, probably more cocky than confident most of the time and just kind of winging it. And, oh, I'll just fall into these problems and we'll figure it out. But I think it is really difficult to kind of teach confidence. It kind of comes from either ignorance or self-assurance or that like, well, the worst case scenario is this and not being scared of that. Um, so to kind of make that question a little bit more than just be more confident, is there any like lessons that you've learned as you've gotten better and you've grown that have helped you with your confidence and your abilities and things like that? I think on the sort of, on the confidence aspect, Going freelance has been quite a big deal for that because, you know, a lot of stuff that happens now I've made happen myself. Yeah. And when I do get a call for a job, it's because somebody wants me and that's like a natural confidence boost. So yeah, yeah. I think I'm more confident now that I've kind of gone it alone almost, but, you know, you don't really know that until you do it, I suppose. No, I, so the advice there would probably have been do things on the side for yourself. Because that is a natural confidence boost. That like, yeah. could you have gone? Although you know, like, there just never would have been time. Early days of Evo, like, because I, I'd moved away from home, didn't initially really know anyone where I lived. I just threw everything at the job. Yeah, and you know, it, what an opportunity! Evo magazine, incredible. Like, I hoped I would get a job there, but never dreamed it would actually happen. Yeah, yeah. And then it did, and so I would just throw myself at any opportunity. I'd go on every group test I could. I'd be away. A lot of the time, I go to motor shows and I would sort of be up late at night writing. You know, I'd so literally every minute of the day was Evo magazine for you then. Not quite, but not far off. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think with hindsight, I don't know how healthy that was because I mean, <laughs> you see a lot of this on social media. People who are sort of young entrepreneurs or whatever, and they tell you to work every minute of the day, and it's I think that's so bollocks, and I think yeah. nobody should do that, and that shouldn't be the mindset. But yet that is kind of how I operated when I was when I was first doing the job. I think there's a, a really important lesson in that mentality. So for context, I've just dropped to four days a week in my day job so that I can do Tacona one day a week, which inherently is my first step towards full-time. And I hope my boss doesn't hear this because he'll be like, what, you're planning on going full-time? <laughs> and then I'll just get fired. Um, a really important part of kind of working for yourself which obviously you're doing and that kind of grind mentality which is in inverted commas because it's such bullshit you have to prioritize your mental well-being yeah because you are no good to anyone if you burn out like 
you can go, right, I'm going to do 12 hours a day, and you've probably got six months in you of 12 hours a day at full capacity before you hit some wall and crash. Yeah. And then all those six months' worth of work are effectively wasted because six months isn't long enough to have established anything properly. And then you crash, and then you lose, say, three months. All of the momentum that you've built has just been wiped out. Whereas if you go, right, I'll do eight, nine hours of healthy work with regular breaks and taking the first hour of the day to like read and do nothing and making sure the last hour of the day is the same, you'll find that you can carry on working those eight hours almost indefinitely yeah. rather than six months of intense like work. And I've found it in jobs that I've been in the past where if you push too hard, you end up actually performing worse. Because yeah. you can't maintain 100%, 100% of the time. You can probably do a good 70% 100% of the time. Or you could do 80% 80% of the time. But you cannot maintain that. And this mentality, especially in a lot of young people today, like I'm only 29, which isn't young, young, but I'm not seasoned veteran. People younger than me have got this, this idea that if you pour every second of every day into building business, you'll become mega successful. And it's really not the case. Like I do, I spend a lot of time doing what I do outside of work and on the weekends and this and the other. And I'm three years in and it's still not full time. And it's not for lack of effort. It's not like I'm lazy. It just takes time to build stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting seeing the current mentality. And social media is so shit for it as well. Oh, God, yeah. Like, it's the worst. It's such a dichotomy of good and bad. It's so good for connecting people. And it's so bad for self-esteem. <laughs> and spreading wrong ideas and unhealthy like habits. It's such a bad place for. Um and you have to really moderate social media personally to make sure that you are in the right place with it. Of course. Um, and obviously in, in the industry that you work in, there's a, a huge amount of social media involved and that's how a lot of news gets out these days. Um, so it must be a bit of a minefield for you from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I don't use social media maybe as much as I could mm. or arguably should, but that's because, I mean, it was during, I think, probably the first lockdown, I just became overwhelmed with it. And not so much the car side of it, but just generally, the algorithms work to show you stuff. Twitter especially, the algorithms seem to work to piss you off. Mm. And I would see, you know, just stuff that... I think I'm quite a sensitive person. I'm quite proud to be a sensitive person. and But it would mean that I would go on there and see, get quite upset or knocked by stuff. And, you know... It was just a waste of energy, a waste of mental energy. If I'm going to be sad or angry about something, it should be something meaningful and not something that I've read on. Something trivial on Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. So I like, really backed out social media for quite a while. And to be honest, only really sort of picked it up again. It was would have been November 2020 when I went quite hard on that and basically needed to promote that to sort of raise a bit of money. Yeah, well, that, that's that's the good side of it is that you can get the awareness out. And I think it's, it's quite healthy of you to have... A, like realised what was happening and kind of gone, oh, we need to kind of nip this, sorry, nip this in the bud. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't and then they get into those like spirals and the arguments and the fights and it's really like not a good place to be. Um, and I've seen bits and bobs of it and I'm quite fortunate in what I do inherently doesn't cause controversy. So I'm not dragged into yeah. arguments because it's it's not 
a very good thing to pick on the person that's doing mental health awareness. Of course not. not. So people tend to leave you alone. And I, uh, I had a guy, I called a chrome-wrapped Rolls-Royce at, parked outside a Chelsea mansion. A lot going on. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot going on here. And this guy was like, oh, I can't believe you'd be so derogatory. And I can't believe you'd be so negative, And I can't believe Henry Catchpole's associated with you. And I probably like, tried to lay into me. And I was like, you know, I'm just a guy, right? It's just a, one guy doing all this. And it's there's bigger fish to fry than a flash car being flash. Yeah. And it kind of was enough to kind of get the guy to step back and kind of go, oh, I suppose so. Because it was almost like he was looking for the fight for the sake of the fight. Yeah, I think there is a lot of that going on, isn't there? And it's quite interesting to kind of bring reality back a bit. People go, oh, right, okay, yeah, it's, it's a bloody chrome-wrapped Rolls-Royce. Yes, it's Flash. And I'm jealous of the guy for being able to afford to do it. But I can still call it Flash, and it's, it's not me picking on it. I'm sure the guy's not scared of being called Flash. And it was a guy that was on The Apprentice, so he responded. Oh, really? And the number what plate was... was his car? He, it was his, got, it yeah. was his roles, and the number plate was Fatso. It's F4TSO. And he replied saying, oh, you should see my McLaren. And it had another equally funny number plate. And I was like, you absolute legend, that's so cool. And it was that, like, even the guy who owns it is taking it in jest. You have no position to be, like, moaning about this. It's not like it's your car that I'm calling ugly or anything like that. It was, there's a lot going on here. And that is such a common occurrence on Twitter yeah, and on Instagram to a certain extent. If you go anywhere near the comments on popular posts, you just get a tirade of wildly swinging arguments. Um, and it, it's, oh, I don't know, you, you have to be careful with it. And I, I think you've, you've probably taken quite a healthy approach to, to A, social media and B, work-life balance. Yeah. Because um, it's easy to fall into the trap. And again, freelancers really allowed that to sort of, you know, pick my hours to some extent and, you know, like move my days around a bit. If I'm not having a particularly great day mentally, then, you know, I can I can always work another day if I need to. I can sort of push into the weekend. And... Yeah, of course. And how have you found the, like, the pressures that come with freelance? Like, have you found that to be a, a challenge? Not so far, really. Um, I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's all been good, really. I've been been fortunate that I know good people who've you know kept the work coming. So, right, which is again, it's testament to your ability if it's consistently coming through the door. Because um, like, I'd be like, oh my god, is anybody going to want me to do any work for them? <laughs> like, I'm not going to be able to eat this month because nobody's going to want me to do anything. Um, and have you kind of considered, so I've, I've had Alex Goy on here and he's become quite a, a good friend of mine and obviously he's freelance and does a lot of diverse stuff. Has the, the thoughts of kind of doing any sort of video or anything like that, is that coming into the periphery or are you solely focusing on the right? I don't really know. So it's interesting when you were talking earlier about sort of career paths and that sort of pressure. I think certainly when I was full-time it felt like video was something I needed to do and I felt like I wanted to do it I think because that's the done thing that's a natural thing to be doing yeah as your career progresses because you were influenced by Chris Harris <laughs> but um so anytime I had sort of appraisals and things it would always be like what would you like to do over the next year like, video I want to get into video but I think as soon as I sort of became freelance and became sort of my own little thing I suddenly thought 
I don't know if I do want to do that. Mm. I think if the right opportunity arises, I would go for it. But I mean, it, you need you need experience to be good on video, yeah. unless you're really confident and a natural. But I just don't think I'll be a natural in front of camera. It would take a lot of experience to get there. I can and, understand what you mean, yeah. And for now, at least, like I said, I just love I love writing, I love writing more than anything else, and that's what I'm happiest doing. But I think if the right opportunity comes up, I'll I'll consider it. But it's not it's not a main aim to go into video. I don't think. Which is probably quite a healthy way to view it, really. Like if you've not got an expectation that you have to, you're not putting that pressure on. And yeah. if you're if you've kind of gone, oh, actually, writing is for like it's sufficient enough for what I enjoy doing. So I don't yeah. need to supplement that, then it's probably quite a healthy place to be. Yeah. And you're not kind of going, oh, what can I do to expand my horizons kind of thing? Like, I do bits and bobs of video, and this is why my friends call me an influencer endlessly to wind me up. And it is interesting kind of learning that world. Yeah. And, like, my day job is design and marketing, and I've now been tasked with doing more video work. And I've quite enjoyed creating it, but the being in front of camera stuff is still it still takes some time. And it's only when you kind of have a go and then look back and you go, oh, you actually have to be a massive, vibrant personality to seem normal on camera. Yeah. Because like, I would just be like myself. Yeah, you have to exaggerate things that just a touch, I think. So much more than you'd think. Yeah. Like, when I've done bits in front of camera and I'm just like this, and then you watch it back, it's like, oh, that's really dull. There's no expression whatsoever. And you, you have to really over-accentuate you. So when you meet these people that have been on film and TV all their lives, and you're like, oh my God, they're such a big personality. It's like, yeah, because they spend all of their time having to over-exaggerate everything that they do. So the hand gestures get bigger, and the, yeah. the Matt, oh, what's his name? The guy in America is like, this, oh, he's a YouTuber. I forgot his name now. He's really, really well known. Um, and someone created a video of his, so when he opens a video, his hands are together, and he goes like this, and opens his hands. Yeah. And they tracked how much it grew. Oh, right, so okay. it started off, it was like he, he opens his hand like 12 inches. And then over like three or four years, he's now doing like a full three foot arm extension. This! <laughs> it was this analysis of it. And it just really showed the, the level of expression that comes with getting yeah. more confident in front of camera and stuff like that. Well, um, one of the first trips I did this year was I went out to the States for a couple of weeks and did a car launch out there and then collected, you know, went and shot a few features. And my best mate, his little boy, who's sort of effectively like a little nephew, he would have been, what, five at the time. And he was really jealous I was going to America to drive cars because in his head, because he watches all the, you know, Marvel films. And so to him, America is like this incredible Land of the superheroes. He's like, do videos of everything that you do out there. (laughs) So over the course of two weeks, I was doing like little videos just for him, just for an audience of one. And I'd be like... I had to, what like a BMW M4 out there, and I'd do a little video guide around that, and, <laughs> and that was really fun. Actually, I did enjoy doing those little video, knowing that he would be the one watching them because you know he's going to love seeing that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think also sort of when I was sort of pointing the camera at myself, I was kind of like seeing him, seeing a little sort of five year old, and so was probably vibrant and all the things he meant to be on video because I knew it was for for a kid. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's dead funny. Like I always think I'm not don't want to be in front of a camera but I love doing those which is probably how you could easily fall into doing video if you wanted to try like yeah. if you're like oh I'm at a car lunch I'll just do a little walk around you might find that you get a little bit more comfortable bit by bit and it's this like confidence building exercise yeah and I think 
because of how social media is, you can do that kind of stuff without a big expectation. So you can go, oh, I'll do a little video and I'll just put it up online. And then as you get better and better at it, your confidence will, will get better. Um, and it's probably something that a lot of people don't have a realistic expectation of when they think of social media. They kind of go, I'm going to post this video, I'm going to become massive. And that's how it works. And it definitely is not how it works. Yeah, And it, it is quite interesting to see the stuff that's out there where people kind of act like this big influencer and it's got like three views or whatever. And it's like, it takes time, just keep working at it. And it's, you really are putting your kind of like your your ego on the line in doing it. Yeah. And it's for anyone that is interested in doing video, you have to be realistic of expectation. It's not a an overnight thing that people seem to think it is. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be the next YouTuber. It's like Shmi's been doing it for a long time. Yeah, the people who are really good at it make it look easy. Yeah. You know, they're effortless in front of camera, so I guess they do give you the impression it's going to be dead easy to do. Yeah, and then you've got a camera pointing at you, and you're like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> I wasn't expecting this to be so... Yeah, it's like, a little bit terrifying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's a person inside that little box, and millions of people are looking at me right now, even though there's there's not, and they aren't. It's still so daunting, and I think the, the flip side of that is, with social media, you don't know what's going to explode. Like, the little bits and bobs I've put onto social media... The stuff that gets loads of traction is not the stuff I was hoping would get loads of traction. Yeah. So I'll spend some time making something and six people will see it. Or I'll take the dash cam footage out of my car from me trying to keep up with a 250 GT short wheelbase replica. And it's had 150,000. I'm like, just the dash cam footage from my car of me trying to chase a Ferrari. And everybody's seen that. And then I go, I spent a whole day making this and nobody's seen it. I remember um, when working on the website... Top Gear, there was a little bit of that. There was this one story. So there was a video of a tap that sounded like an F1 car. Right. I don't know where it had come from, but the clip must have been like six seconds long or something. Yeah, yeah. And somebody just turns on this tap and it just, yeah, it screams like an F1 car. <laughs> and it did the kind, like, disgustingly high numbers on the website. We'd have gone out, spent all week shooting some amazing feature with all these amazing cars, spent Lord knows how much money putting it together. And it did less page views than the tap that sounds like an F1 car. It's mad, isn't it? Some things just sort of blow up and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's infuriating as anybody that's tried to make anything for the internet as well. Because you you really do put your heart and soul in. And then a tap, a noisy tap will get more engagement. um, Which is so frustrating i imagine there was probably a few moments like that for you i mean it really did sound like an f1 car to its credit (laughs) but the thing is i now really want to see this video i'm sure like i'm gonna go and search for this now and And just add to the page add to the page views yeah Yeah. i won't see anything else that you've written i'll just see this noisy tap because i'm really curious as to what an f1 car sounding tap and it'll just sound like an f1 car and i know what an f1 car sounds like but i want to see this tap do it Um, which is the mad world of the internet and especially like TikTok and before that Vine and stuff like that seven seconds was all you needed to to do mad interesting things yeah and it's really weird to see the level of creativity out there in creating videos and things like that and what trends take off and what don't and is there much of that kind of thing within journalism with big trends or anything like that or is it relatively consistent of car launches will grow and this will grow or i think it's a mixture really car launches feel like 
they've never really changed to some extent. People are doing different things on them. You're, you know, people will be doing more sort of self-generated video stuff when they're on launches. But I think, I don't know, there's lots about the industry that stayed traditional, really. I did an Alfa Romeo launch last week over in Italy, and it felt like an Alfa Romeo launch that I did in 2010 over in Italy. You know, it was same place, same sort of travel. Like, yeah. lot, like the bones of the event hadn't really changed, but the stuff it was the stuff people were doing on the event that had changed more than that, I would say. I guess there's probably kind of limited in the scope of what you could do with a car launch. There's only so many ways to go, here is a new car, go and drive it. Like, that's the fundamental parts of it, really, isn't it? Is Here's a new car, either look around it, or this is a running model, go and drive it. And how has the, the rise of the self-generated influencer, in inverted commas, world impacted traditional journalistic work? I don't know, really. Um, it feels like quite a big question. I know there's, you know, among some journalists there's a there's a wariness of that world but i think the two things can coexist yeah i'll admit to not really watching a huge amount of influencer content myself but i'm not i've no firm feelings either way as to its existence it's you know it's nice to see new faces on events really you see you know the more people that join the industry the better i guess it's nice to see new people yeah i think there's a Probably from some of the older journalists, there's this, oh, you're taking food out of my mouth mentality around it. So if you're there, that means there's probably not a journalist there that could have been there. Um, But I don't think they've taken the places of journalists. I think they're just additional places. I might be wrong in that, but I I don't get the impression that, you know, the numbers of journalists are dwindling as a result. That's good to hear, um, because that would be the thing... that concerns a lot of people is that, oh, these kids wandering around with the phones pointed at themselves are r- removing proper writers and things from the pool. If that's not the case, that's reassuring. I think it's, I think it's nice that they can coexist because I do see, you know, I see these, you know, people just immediately whip their phone out and start recording something and that's not how my brain works. Yeah. So I'll have a moment of self-doubt of like, oh crap, should I be, should yeah, I be doing yeah. something like that? <laughs> Am I, you know, worse at my job because I didn't think to do that? Yeah. But that's fine because I'm doing a different thing to them and I've just got to remember that, I suppose. And I think that's probably a, a big challenge for the younger generation or people that are wanting to step into the journalistic world is... We're inherently in a world now where your phone coming out of your pocket is the first thing that comes to mind whenever anything happens. Yeah. And I imagine there'll be a, a wave of younger people, and to my, myself included in that really, as I'm kind of tip, dipping my toe into the writing stuff, when I see something happen, my initial reaction is always to grab my phone and, oh, film that. So I reckon there's probably a new generation of writers that will be coming through who have that as their default setting of get your phone out and record it and the flip side of that is you've then got a reference moving forward regardless even though phone camera versus reality are two very different yeah it looks very different on the phone than it does when you see it in person and if you're not actually taking it in in person you're probably not getting the true experience but i think that that's something that a young generation of writers is going to have to learn how to kind of step back and not immediately like, I need to film this. It, it's in, it'll be interesting to see the direction that these things go. Um, on the flip side of that, if they're going to be writing online and publishing stuff online, it's probably a 
a good mentality to have. Like if 21-year-old me was sort of joining the industry now, I'd have to be doing different different things. When I joined, it was all about writing. Yeah. Video was still in its relative infancy, really. And social media certainly was in its infancy. I found out last year that I'm an aged millennial. That's right. sort of where I stand in society. <laughs> so I was born at the end of the 80s, and that makes me just about a millennial, but like the at the old end. Right, you're the, I'm firmly millennial. I was 93, so you're a couple of years older than I am. But it's basically somebody who's kind of like, you know, straddled the worlds. You remember not having the internet at home, yeah, but you're yeah. also quite good at using the internet. You're sort of... You've got your foot in both camps, whereas I think I guess anybody who's young and joining the industry now just will have no memory of not Pre-internet, having yeah, yeah. a smartphone or not having the internet, and so just be more savvy about about creating content like that in a way that my brain's not quite there. So my default isn't to immediately be filming stuff and recording stuff as yeah, it's yeah. happening; it's to be taken in a little bit to write about it later. That's more of my mentality. Have you heard of the millennial gap? with no. video so there's a thing where with like tiktoks and instagram reels and things like that you can tell if someone's a millennial because there's a slight pause at the start of every video okay because we check that it's recording so our brain is like right we're recording whereas the younger people don't they just press the button and go so like, i'm here let's go whereas we're like yep okay let's go and there's now this thing called like the millennial gap wow. where it makes perfect sense. Yeah, because yeah. when we were younger, we had the first like, digital cameras and you had to really like, right, or a camcorder or something like that, you had to really check that it was working before you had the confidence to go and do the thing. Whereas now, kids are just like, phones out, recording, off we go. Like, it's so instant that they don't have to check anything works first. Yeah. They just do it. Whereas we've got this kind of, right, is that recording? Yep, the light's on. It's a little square on the screen. Okay, I'm here doing this thing. And it's... It's this weird little phenomenon that's that's now been recognised as a yeah. an actual thing. Um, I got a Polaroid camera this year. Oh yeah, and that has taken some learning. And even then, it's now connected to my phone, so I know if it's going to work or not because my phone acts as a light meter. So the camera you it connects to my phone, which is weird for a Polaroid camera to do. It's not a viewfinder or anything like that. But if you put your hand in front of the lens, there's a little bar that moves so okay. you know if the lighting's right. And it took me six photos to learn that that was a thing. And a professional photographer had to come and tell me that's what was going on. So I was like taking these pillows, like, because you can adjust the white balance and the exposure and stuff on the phone. So I was just playing around with all these sliders and getting these terrible photos. And he walked over and went, no, that's a light meter, right? If you get it right in the middle and take your photo, it'll be okay. I was like, Oh, okay. And then the next photo was perfect. I felt like an absolute muppet. Yeah. And But it's that thing where you have to kind of do the checks and make sure, because you just don't trust the thing to work yeah, inherently. Yeah, of course, yeah. Looking for a little red light or something. Yeah, because that's what we grew up with. Like, you had film cameras, and if you didn't get it right, that was it. You had no second chance until six weeks later when it got developed. And even they're making a resurgence. I'm like, Why? You've got an instant photo on your phone. Why do you need to have this film camera? Oh, it's nostalgic, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Print the fucking photo off. Oh, God. I didn't think I was going to get riled up by photos. and really didn't. You have, yeah. It really got to me, that. Jeez. I'm going to have to have another glass of water at this point. <laughs> have a calm down. Sit in my car for ten minutes and shout. <laughs> um, so what's, what's your 
kind of moving forward hopes and plans? Is it to continue with what's going on? Obviously, you're still within your first year and still learning how it all goes. Yeah, I'm yeah, very happy with how things are at the moment. I think the fun thing is, you know, working with Vil of Verk magazine. Yeah, that's your name now. Me and him were mates from we started working together at Evo, he joined a few years after me. And it's so nice, you know, I go around his house and I'll do a bit of subbing on the magazine or be, you know, doing something or other. And it's just fun, we're just mates. And if anything, we're not actually that productive because we just sort of gossip a bit and then remember <laughs> it's sort of 4pm, we should be doing some work. But that's the really, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots, lots to love about what I do at the moment. But, you know, being able to work on projects with really close mates is, is really cool. And, t- you know, to have been part of the launch of something, that was, that was amazing. Yeah. To, you know, to see the first issue and to know how much he's, I mean, he'll talk about it more when he comes on, but like, yeah, to be part of the launch of something was exciting because everything else I've worked on has pre-existed. It's, I've joined a team that's been there for a long time and so yeah, to be part of the launch of something was fun. It was very cool and I, it was a very proud moment for me to get that first issue and have my first full page yeah. in there. And then I, Spotted on Sunday that Carl Brett Coffee in there, who are very similar to me, and it's a guy doing it around his full time job, and him and his partner go to shows together, and she's yeah. like Grace, and she's like, I've been dragged along. <laughs> it's really nice that Vil from Verk could uh, support two. We're not similar businesses, but we're similar setups, um, and to be part of it from the start is really quite a cool thing. Yeah. And if nothing else, we were there for number one. Like it's such a cool moment. And from your perspective, do you think that this kind of higher quality quarterly is going to be the way that the industry starts to lean more in? I think so. I mean, I remember us talking about it in the Evo office years ago when we were coming up with you know big ideas of what to do next. We did you know come up with you know does it become less frequent, more expensive, thicker paper, better ink, all of this sort of stuff. And it was discussed, but I think we were just part of too big a publisher for that. Yeah. I think you need to be in a a smaller publisher or publishing yourself or, you know, it's it's something big publishers might never really cotton on to. But yeah, I, I, think, think, I think that's how mag- magazines and print go forward. Or, cer- or certainly it's one strand of how they go forward anyway. Yeah, and I think as a consumer of that media, it's the the thing that appeals most to me. Like it's almost like you're reading a book. It's a more of an event to read. Yeah. It's not quite as throwaway as a magazine. You kind of take pride in ownership of it. And as someone that didn't really grow up with car magazines, it wasn't the way that I consumed car media. I was as YouTube started on Top Gear and things like that car mags weren't a staple part my dad didn't read magazines or anything like that and we were always off doing stuff and as I've kind of matured the magazine has never really had that special place for me okay. whereas these quarterlies have really grabbed me and I I have talked about it a bit and I've wrote a little piece on my own blog about it I've gotten oh, I'm getting better at getting into the habit of using an alarm clock instead of my phone and taking that first 45 minutes of the day to make a cup of coffee and sit and read and leaving my phone like upstairs out the way. Yeah. And having those big, thick quarterlies really adds to that kind of feel of importance of that time. Yeah. And it makes that time in the day like a really special, like, oh, this is me time, this is my sitting down, and I've got a nice big wing back. 
and I sit and I read and I drink my coffee that I've made from scratch. And it's a real nice kind of almost like a mindfulness process. And it just starts the day off in the right way. You give me an idea, I'm going to, yeah. Well, I always mean to do stuff like that, but then... So here's I'll, the challenge. I'll check my phone first, and then that's how That's the challenge. Like, the biggest challenge, and I'm still pretty shit at following this rule. I, I try my best, but I'm, I'm as bad at it as anybody else, and I don't try and put myself on some sort of high horse. If I'm the mental health guy, I'm perfect at mental health. So I'm really shit. If you can get into the routine of putting your phone in another room when you go to bed and leaving it in the other room when you get up, you will find your mental well-being has a huge jump. It's really bizarre how big of an impact this has. So I bought a digital alarm clock. Yeah. So it's silent. And it's sometimes it should be there more on my wardrobe. I really should get better at doing that, but I'm getting better at getting up when it goes off and not just snoozing it endlessly. So I used to have it on the wardrobe. So when it went off, I had to get up to turn it off. And the simple act of feet on the floor, out of the bed, was enough to kind of get the momentum. And then have a shower, go downstairs, make a cup of coffee. And I've got a bean grinder. I'm a little bit hipstery about it, but it's a process and I like the process and that's what means a lot. And it's making a cup of coffee from scratch and then sitting down with a magazine for 45 minutes, if I've got time for 45 minutes, is a really impactful way to start the day. And it's, yeah. it, every time that I do that, I have a much better day than when I don't do that. The days where I get up and my fa- I took my phone to bed, so it's in my hand when I get up, and I'll have a shower, and I'll be on YouTube or whatever while I'm making a cup of tea and a bit of breakfast, and I'll just sit and scroll. I'll always end up late for work, because that's such a distraction that I'm... Like, my brain's not concentrating. And then the same at the end of the day. Now I live with my other half, and we're as bad as as each other. But leaving the phone in the other room, going to bed... So we we try and get to bed for around half nine, just because we have to get up at half six. Yeah. Leaving the phone in the other room and spending half an hour to an hour just being present... Like it's not that like, oh, you're probably shagging. It's not even that. It's spending half an hour just talking to my best friend, basically. Yeah. Catching up on the day, having a joke, being stupid. But in this, our little world, but you're not going to sleep when your eyes are tired. You're just going to sleep because it's the end of the day. So you'll go, right, it's half ten. We'll turn the light off. It's time to sleep. Rather than going, my eyes hurt. And now I'm asleep. So your brain actually has time to turn off rather than just like, you're exhausted, off. And then you wake up and it's on and you don't have any time to kind of start up and slow down, which is really important. And then there's all the blue light stuff and this, that yeah. and the other. And I, when I, and I don't know why I'm so bad at doing this. And it's probably because phones are really addictive and they're designed to be. And it is like a drug addiction. And there's been studies that show like, the come down on the withdrawals and stuff is like heroin in how your brain reacts to it. It's such a huge impact. And I can't really kind of explain just how big of a difference it makes. Yeah. It's one of those things I know I'm meant to be better at. So like I set like a sleep pattern on my phone so that 10 o'clock every night it sort of goes into its sort of night mode and it, it gets a bit harder to and... swipe it open and all that sort of stuff. I didn't know I did that. 
And you can have it. It takes like an extra second step to swipe it open, basically. That's um, quite clever. I didn't know about that. So that's sort of set between like ten at night and eight in the morning, kind of thing. But I mean, it's just a half you just the get time through it, don't you? it. Yeah, yeah. and it's. Because your brain's going, oh, there's all this stuff that you could be looking at. I think, being perfectly honest, I live by myself and a phone is a connection to the outside world and sometimes you just crave a bit of yeah. bit of connection. But it's not always actually helpful connection, especially if it's via social media. It's not. Sometimes you just end up Twitter being, fight is not a good way to end the day. <laughs> well, it's less that. It's more like fear of missing out. It's sort of, you'll see something going on and go, oh God, I'm not there, I'm, I'm here instead. And so like, yeah. you, you seek a bit of connection, come away feeling even lonelier, I suppose. But um, yeah, I'll start, I'll, I'll buy an alarm clock. Well, I would recommend that you do. I, I had a, a friend that was finding it tough and I just was like, it was three pound. Here's an alarm clock, yeah. just bloody use the thing. And the, the biggest challenge is having the discipline to do it. Especially when you have those nights where you're like, oh, I, could just, I feel a bit crap. I could just do with distracting myself for an hour and then it's four hours and then you're not sleeping properly. And it, it's kind of that having the almost like a self-awareness to go, right, I'm going to be present through this shitty time because I need to, I obviously need to feel this way and I need to get through these emotions. I need to get to the other side and that's part of life. Having sometimes feeling like shit is normal. Yeah. And we're not supposed to be happy all the time. We're not made to do that because it's so unusual for you to be constantly in a state of like high. Yeah. And the really good times and the really happy times feel so good because they contrast. Yeah. If you were happy all the time, being happy wouldn't be... You'd just be know. numb, wouldn't you? Basically? Yeah, it would cancel itself out, wouldn't and it? And then almost? a bad thing would completely derail yeah. you. Like you'd be so far off the other end if it went wrong. Yeah. It's such an unrealistic game to be happy all the time, isn't it? But it seems to be, and it, I think again, social media sort of suggests that as the lifestyle that we're all aiming for. But yeah. it's, it's, it's weird, like how much we're impacted by it and how false it all is. Like you see so many videos of oh we're a happy family and I'm drinking my smoothie and nothing has ever gone wrong ever and it's like and then you'll find a story and it's like yeah he cheated on her you're like it wasn't so good then was it um and it's really important to take time to a just be like in a just be doing nothing like it's a really important thing to just do nothing yeah like we're so used to not being bored that the tiniest little bit of boredom is like holy shit, like, this is wrong, I don't know what to do. And it's, again, really important to just be like, right, I'm, I'm 10 minutes to do the dishes, make a cup of tea, sit down, and just breathe. Yeah. It's such a big thing, and we're so not used to it. Like Another part of that little morning routine that I'm trying to get better at is just doing... Like, I won't do the dishes when we go to bed, I'll do them in the morning while the coffee machine's warming up or whatever. And you're just kind of, oh, I'm in the moment, I'm doing the dishes, and I'm just present doing this task. And it, again, it really contributes to that kind of mental well-being. And again, I'm not, I'm not good at mental health. I know the right things to say and the, a lot of the advice to give, but it's still such a challenge. Yeah, to and actually these, follow it every day. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard easy. work, and it's people don't appreciate itself, that. It? Yeah. People don't realise that it takes effort. You can't just, oh, well, this is easy. I'll just pick my phone up because it's easy. And I'll look at this because it's easy. You have to actually put some kind of conscious thought into what you're doing to get that kind of benefit from it. Because you'll be a little bit more robust when things aren't in a great place. Because currently, you're, you might be in a good place 
and you're used to getting up, checking your phone, having a cup of tea with your phone in your hand, watching YouTube videos, getting dressed, going to work, sitting in front of a screen all day, coming home, straight on the TV, on the YouTube, and you just spend your whole, all of this time not actually present. And then you find you've lost two years of your life because you were, you were zoned out for that whole time. And then something will happen and it will derail that and you don't know how to cope with it because you're forced to be in this environment. Like yeah. You could be in a car crash, say, and then you're in hospital for a couple of days and you're forced to be in an environment all by yourself with nothing really to kind of engage with. And that's so much more challenging if you're not used to having time doing nothing or yeah. kind of I not... Think- Lockdown really educated me in that because I'd only been living by myself for three months when lockdown hit and a lot of that three months leading up to it, I was away on, you know, features and car launches and all that sort of stuff. But then all of a sudden I came back to this flat one night and then wasn't allowed to leave it for like, at the, at the time. And Two in, weeks in, it was yeah. the original. And so that was a real, real learning curve, real learning curve. I imagine that period of time must have been really difficult not only for being in a flat on your own but also for the the industry that you worked in yeah I mean I think like so I was at Top Gear at the time and we were such like a you know a sort of innovative team that we we made it work quite quickly we found ways of you know, we produced a whole issue without doing a single shoot. I think we had a couple of things that had been shot previously and not used yet, which certainly helped. But, you know, we did a whole... It was centred around turbo cars and, you know, the whole... It was all, you know, like, almost like an online listicle kind of feature, mm. but across a magazine and in much greater depth. And, yes, I think we qu- we quickly sort of made depth. that work, actually. I think it, everyone kind of... We were already a creative team, and I think sort of backs against the wall, everyone just became even more creative. It was sort of that was quite an interesting time. One of those like necessities being the mother of invention yeah. kind of scenarios, which is tomorrow for me. I've got to get this month's design done with 15 days into the month, and I've not got anything done. I'm like, yeah. right, I've got to be creative tomorrow. <laughs> um, but how did you find the lockdown in particular for yourself? Like, well, it was what were the lessons that you learned there? It was a mixed bag, really. The first few weeks I found. The first week or so, I think we all found it a bit of a novelty, but then, like all novelties, it sort of wore off pretty quick. I used to find it quite hard when we had Zoom meetings, and then it would finish, and Back to the there silence. was like sort of 12 people on the screen, all in little squares, and we were all chatting to each other, and then suddenly it stopped, and the flat was like silent, and there was no one around, it's like, oh yeah, I am alone, and it was like, yeah. I made that sound bleaker than it actually was, but it wasn't, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, no. <laughs> it, was, it was like, yeah... The Zooms were fine, but it was the end of the Zoom I always found quite hard. But like, so basically a month into lockdown, I discovered I had testicular cancer. So that oh, kind shit. of, it was... We're an hour and 20 in and you just started bringing this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, this really extreme thing happened to me. Yeah, dropped the bombshell right at the end. But um, And it was interesting because, I mean, I'm not thankful it happened, obviously, but... It did sort of liven lockdown up, right. which sounds, well, keep sounds like a very sort of blase way of putting it. But I had had a month completely by myself, and all of a sudden, this you know, I basically like sort of discovered the lump, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Like just 
in, like my blood ran cold the second I found it. I was like, I kind of know this is bad. Sort of spidey sense was probably tingling. I hadn't even joined the doctor here yet because I just had mo- one just moved in it, yeah. not that long before. Hadn't even. I never got the doctor because, like, one, I'm a man. I don't like going. You know, yeah, we typically don't this, like going yeah. to the doctors. But also, I've never really been that ill, so I just it, when when I move to a new house, I don't instantly think, oh, I better join the doctors. It doesn't feel that urgent. So the next day, like, was just like, shit. What do I do now? So I, f- I phoned the local doctor and they were like, oh yeah, we're shut, we're not letting anyone in, it's lockdown, haven't you heard? I said, yeah, but I think I've, I've found this thing. And she goes, right, okay. And basically there's an army base nearby, so the doctor has like a sort of admin thing for guys who were just there for a few months at the army base. So they put me through that sort of system of a temporary sort That's of, quite good of membership mm-hmm. of the doctor and said, come along now, we'll take a look. And then it all just sort of escalated from there over the course of two or three weeks in and out of hospital. But men, I was out and about. So, yeah, I'd been locked down with a couple of press cars, which weren't moving anywhere. But all of a sudden, I had an excuse to drive them because I was driving to and from. You're like, oh, I'm going to get so much content. These <laughs> <laughs> <He's> long-termers. <laughs> but, yeah, and I was going sort of in and out of scans and all sorts of other stuff like that. And must then... have been a terrifying time, though. It was, but I think... I think, like, I'd maybe not always talked about my mental health. I mean, you know, we're, we're all traditionally and, you know, infamously bad at it. But I think it it was so, like, so severe that I actually found it easier. It's quite hard to talk around being a bit worried and a bit stressed because they don't feel like real feelings sometimes. They're not like a physical thing. Yeah. They're just something that's going on in your head and you don't always think that other people are going to understand that you're worried or that you're stressed, but actually having a physical health problem, yeah, it was actually much easier to talk about because there's like a scan to prove that it's yeah, you've got this real. tangible thing that you can go. I've got this thing. So it's think, awful. Yeah, so I think for my brain, I found it much easier to open up. And as soon as I was diagnosed, I was like very open with, you know, I think I sent an email around the team, talked about it on a Zoom, and then and then obviously took a few months off work entirely while I was sort of getting better and being treated and stuff but yeah and actually I think I'm a better person for it I'm a much more open person than I used to be because of it and I think because once you've sort of got something like that off your chest which is really daunting the first time you do it once you've actually told someone oh shit I've got cancer actually telling people anything else is really the bar is high at that point. Yeah, yeah you've I sort of, yeah, you've done, you've told somebody the, the very hardest bit of news you possibly can. Yeah. Anything you tell them after that. So suddenly I am a lot better at telling people if I'm a bit sad or if I'm a bit stressed because I sort of, I went in at the deep end and now. Yeah. I'm yeah I nearly died because of cancer. So <laughs> I'm having a bad day. Calm down. Like, it makes a lot of sense that, that you'd be that way now. But it's, it's really the kind of inspiring to hear that you've taken such a big positive from such a big negative situation. Yeah, and I don't think that's like a conscious... That's not necessarily a conscious choice. There was no point where I didn't have some great epiphany of I'm going to change my life now. That never really happened. It's never as cinematic as you think it's going to be. You see people get diagnosed with stuff on films and TV shows all the time. It's It's not that dramatic. Right. For me, it happened. Funnily enough, I was on a Zoom call, sat where you are on my laptop. What, scratching your balls? You're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this was, this was a few weeks down the line when I've been oh, right, for scans okay. and stuff <laughs> like that. And we were just on some mundane sort of Friday morning Zoom call, looking at the flat plan of the magazine, seeing which deadlines are which and all the rest of it. 
and my phone starts ringing and I see that it's the doctor's surgery. So I basically nipped into the kitchen just there, leaving the Zoom. Like I'd muted myself, but the Zoom's still running. Pick, like pick up the phone and she goes, hi, Stephen, I'm, I'm just ringing about your cancer diagnosis. And as yet, nobody had actually said, said that. It, right. I went, um, right? I was like, I've not heard that yet. She went, have you not? I went, no. She went, oh, You're like, right. this is me finding out, thank you. And so then we, we had a bit of a call and obviously like, I come off the phone, I'm like flustered. But this Zoom's running away and because of where my kitchen is, as you can see, like, I couldn't get back. Like, obviously I just wanted to kind of it. Yeah, yeah. go and jump onto my bed and sort of not speak to anyone for a while. But suddenly the Zoom's here. So I just came down, calm as you like, sat back down and just sort of stared. And they're like, everything okay? Well. And just finish the meeting and then form a best mate and then, you know, the rest is history kind of thing. But it was like, so like, almost trivial the way I found out. You kind of want it to be big and cinematic. You think you're living within your own film and it's, you know. Yeah, you kind of expect it to be like the opening sequence from Up where they're sat there in the hospital and he's got his hand on their shoulder and all that. And it was, yeah. uh, I'm just calling about this. And you're like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't know about that yet. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was just a slightly bung, like bungle phone call. But. <sighs> but, yeah. but So how have you kind of like progressed throughout this whole journey of dealing with that? Is it, has it been something that you've, you found a lot of support from have you yeah I mean everyone was amazing because what ended up happening was I sort of got given an operation date and then sort of a few days before I go and do a COVID test to make sure I was allowed in hospital to have the operation and I tested positive oh shit didn't have any symptoms and this will be like what May 2020 at this point so still like COVID's gonna kill everyone but it was mad because I'd not been anywhere like I'd just been to the shop. I just went to the corp every few days. Like I'd not, I'd, I'd, I'd stuck to every single rule yeah. and somehow still tested positive and didn't quite believe it, to be honest. It's like, oh, they must have got the test wrong. And I was like, can I do another? They're like, no, it's it's positive or it's not positive. Like you, you've got it. Yeah. But basically they cancelled the operation and said, and at this point, like they didn't know how many days you had symptoms for, how many days you were contagious for. So I had to wait four weeks before I could do another <sighs> test and if I was negative to that, then I could get another operation date. But it suddenly meant that, because I was off work by this point, I just had this like chasm of time and nothing to do and nowhere I could go and like just, what the hell do I do? God. So just every single day I told a new mate or a new bunch of mates or a new, any sort of... Good job you got enough friends, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes it sound like I've got loads of friends. 28 I people to I haven't got four weeks worth of friends, but... I've got like three days in me and then I'm run out of people. <laughs> it would even be like some sort of like stag do WhatsApp group from several years ago where I maybe only know two of the people in it. I'd go in there and be like, hey guys. Yeah. Um, You're my daily task. We'll be like, this thing's just happened to me. Go and check yourselves. Look at Like it was just sort of every single day I was sort of telling at least one new person what was happening. Yeah. And that helped me accept it and helped me accept that it was real. But it also like... I, th- I think, yeah, just mentally it helped me get my head around what was happening because I was talking about it every day. Yeah. Um, and so it became just a bit of a project to always tell somebody. Well, if I, if I had somebody new to tell, it might even be... So I did start working a little bit just because I was so bored and had nothing to do. But, you know, I'd just be emailing somebody about a work-related thing. And if I knew them well enough, it would be, oh, by the way, this is going on right now. Yeah, yeah. I know that's nothing to do with this conversation, but, like... 
go and check important. yourself now yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And I just became a bit militant about it. I, well, I guess your advice would be go and check yourself then. Yeah, well, funny enough, like when, when I was probably like 15, some guy came into our school with leaflets about testicular cancer. And the way my brain works, I read this leaflet and I was like, well, I'm definitely going to get that. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sort of pessimist in my brain was like, well, there's, you will almost certainly die of this. <laughs> So I'd always been pretty good at checking myself purely because I was like scared into it as a sort of... As a teenager? Yeah, as a sort of, yeah, scared, scaredy cat little kid. God, what a self-fulfilling prophecy. Bizarre. <laughs> it was, that, was, that was what was strange when it did actually happen. It's like... I knew. Ah, I yeah. knew all along. <laughs> like, I can see lie. the future. I bet you want to... I'll get a lottery ticket. I'll be right about that too. But as soon as something like this happens, you realise that while it is relatively uncommon, it's not actually all that rare and suddenly you know you'll tell people go oh yeah that actually happened to me or that happened to my brother or that happened to my boyfriend or whatever like actually it turns out pretty much everyone knows somebody who certainly who's had cancer because you know that's just the world we live in but yeah testicular cancer is a bit more common than you maybe realize but because i think men don't talk about both their feelings and their genitalia yeah it's sort of like People, it probably happens to lots of people and they just never talk about it because it's like... It's almost stigmatised a bit, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's not the thing to do. Um, I think so many people are so worried about being, like, really masculine that they would never both talk about weakness but just talk about the dick, basically. Yeah. I've never been more conscious of my own balls in a podcast before. <laughs> I'm saying, like... That's what, what, what I was aiming him. for. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was aiming I'll for. I bring him around, I'll make him really conscious of his own balls. Um but I think that that's quite a common thing across not just kind of cancer and checking yourself and things like that, but even like mental health and just talking about the little things. Like I think there's such a big barrier caused by our own egos that kind of stops us going, I feel like crap or this is why I'm moody today or this is why I'm withdrawn. Yeah. We're so bad at A, talking about it and kind of understanding what we're feeling like I'm really crap at, I'll be just really quiet and withdrawn and it'll take me a couple of days to realise why. So I'll be like this absolute like recluse, mardy, snappy dick. Yeah. And my other half then got to put up with that while I figure out what's going on. And she knows that I'm not scared about going, this is what it is, but I'm so bad at understanding what's going on that it takes me ages to figure it out and to process it. And I'm like, I'm really sorry, this is what was going on. And by the time I figured out what's going on, I've I've got over it. Yeah. And I'm back to normal again. I'm like, this is why I was so short with you. She's like, great, anything that you need me to? I'm like, oh, no, I've, I've figured it out. I've, I've come up with the solution to the problem, and now I'm okay again. So you just every so often have a couple of days of me being an absolute bellend, and then I'm fine again. But I think that's a huge thing that blokes really aren't good at, is understanding what they feel. And then once they've kind of understood what they feel, saying that that's what it is we're really bad at learning our emotions because i think our default is just anger like if something's not right we're default like right i'm angry now rather than it being like oh that upsets me or that makes me feel unconscious like subconsciously like insecure or anything like that we're just like no i don't like it now i'm angry and we've probably had years and years and years of that being the default that now that we're a bit more accepting of emotion the big challenge is learning what the different feelings actually are yeah. and how they kind of come out. And, and what might have triggered them as well, I guess. Yeah, oh, I'm a nightmare for that sort of stuff because I, I went through kind of trauma as a like adolescent and a young adult. So I have all sorts of stuff that just flares up randomly. Like, And I don't know what the trigger point was. 
And it's stuff like, I hate being on the phone. And it's taken me 10 years to learn why that is. So now I kind of have to try and go, I don't want to make a phone call. Can I text or email? And I'll only call if I kind of have to. And it's really hard to explain that without having to open a door to something that I don't really want to go into. Yeah. So like even at work, someone will go, oh, just call him. I'm like, I'm going to send him an email. Like, Why don't you call him? I was like, because I sent him an email. Yeah, but you could have called him. I'm like, right, this thing happened and now I don't want to make phone calls. And now it's awkward because you, I've opened this door to a thing that you definitely didn't want to know about and I didn't want to talk about. Could you not have just left me alone with my email? <laughs> Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm like, yeah, I did it for a reason. I'm not just like, oh, I don't want to. I'm lazy and I don't want to make phone calls. And it, it's taken 10 years to learn that. Yeah. And then there's all this other stuff that flares up from time to time. And it's, again, like with the getting up and using an alarm clock, it, it takes conscious effort to learn. And we have to kind of be present when we feel stuff and go, right, I'm feeling something. I need to be in this moment and feel this thing. Otherwise, I'm not going to learn these feelings and then I'm going to have something happen again and I'm just going to react and I'll be in that fight or flight mode. And I had it um, earlier this year. I lost a, a friend of mine and it was while we were moving house and I was literally packing boxes, got the text and I was like, I'm just going to sit on the floor and cry. Yeah. And I sat there for about an hour and a half and Grace was like in the other room like, I'm just going to let you do you. I know you need to go through this. I could just hear the tape on these boxes and then the door... You okay, yeah, I'm all right. He's like, okay, get in a bit. But it was a really important moment to sit there and feel everything that was coming because I, I haven't really experienced loss. I've got all my grandparents, all my parents, most of my relatives, and the relatives that I have lost are so distant from me that you don't really feel it in the same way. Yeah. So when a friend, I'm not used, and nobody's really used to it, but I've not really experienced it often enough to go, oh, I know what I'm feeling. And it, it was a real conscious thing to go, right, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to hate this feeling, but I'm going to learn it and I'm going to experience it because I'm supposed to. I'm not supposed to pull my phone out and distract myself. I'm supposed to sit here and cry for however long I need to cry yeah. for and be in a little ball on the floor until I get through the other side of this emotion. And those are really important lessons. And I think as blokes, we need to get better at that. And I think having conversations like we've had today where you've really kind of gone, here's my vulnerability, here's a thing that was a hard thing to do, but it's okay to talk about, it's a really important thing to do. So, hey, thank you for that, and for, for opening up after an hour and 20. <laughs> you finally cracked us. Yeah, I, I have this this kind of running, it's not a running joke, but it's a running kind of analysis of these podcasts that it takes about an hour for the mental health stuff oh, to, to come out. bubble onto the surface. Because a lot of people, when they kind of encounter this podcast, it's a, oh, it's a, it's a casual conversation, and whatever happens is just part of conversation, and that's okay. And the subtext of it is, mental health will probably come up because it's a normal thing to talk about. Yeah, everyone's got some mental health. Like it's not reserved to ten percent of people who have it really bad. Everyone has some level of mental health. Yeah, exactly. And it fluctuates every single day, no matter who you are, no matter how good your life is or how happy you are you'll still have sad days everyone has sad days yeah and it's really important that we have the capacity to talk about it and it doesn't have to be i'm feeling like killing myself therefore i'm going to talk it can just be i feel a bit low today and just acknowledging that that is present and is there 
is often quite enough to kind of take the edge off that moment. Yeah. And like just having those days, and I'm sure you've been through a lot of a dark time with what went on and being in lockdown and kind of this perfect storm of shit all happened at the same time. Where there were those days where you're like, I, I don't want to wake up today. I just want to stay here and not have to deal with the world. Did you find that you'd had enough kind of support and you'd got enough confidence in talking about it that when those days did arrive that you could kind of work through it and get through the other side by opening up a bit? Yeah, I mean, I've got really good mates. My best mate in particular, he was he was really special during that time and I, th- I think we spoke every single day throughout the whole process. And as it happened after I had the operation, I had to spend, I think it was like 48 hours with a, a carer effectively right. because of being on general anaesthetic and all that sort of stuff. And so I went and, went and lived with him. And it was around the time that bubble families were allowed for people who lived by themselves. So him and his wife and their kids became sort of my bubble family. So, I th- you know, he was really good. I had loads of other friends who were absolutely amazing. And even people who I'd maybe lost touch with a bit or people who maybe felt more like acquaintances, they really, like, when I told them, really latched onto it. And was pro- maybe they've got family experience of of cancer or mental health or or anything that made them particularly, like, interested as it were but you know I had a bunch of almost like people I'd not spoke to in a while who were suddenly back in my life as a result of talking about it so it was easier than I would have dared imagine on the on the mental side of things I think which is really really good to hear like the the last thing that I would have wanted that answer to be was no I was all alone and it was awful (laughs) I I probably should have thought that question just a little bit before asking. To be honest, the, the hardest day was the day that that COVID result came back and suddenly my operation was cancelled. Because up until that point, it had been such like a... I basically got on like a travelator of sort of this scans and appointments. Yeah. And it was relentless. Every three or four days, I'd be driving somewhere and having my balls felt by somebody new. And <laughs> Oh, what fun. I know, yeah. And... It's always an ugly old bloke as well. It's never the one that you want touching your balls. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was like it was this sort of like relentless stream of of appointments, and then all of a sudden, I had this sort of the surgery was dangling right in front of my face, the thing that was going to fix it all, and then it was sort of whipped away, and then with no new date, so it was like suddenly there was nothing on the horizon. The travelator had stopped at that point. Yeah, exactly, but. I mean, I had like a sort of Macmillan nurse who was appointed to me when, when the whole process began and she would sort of phone every week to see how I was and I had her number and I just phoned her and was like, oh my God, it's terrible, it's all been cancelled, what am I going to do? And she was amazing. She was, I think she was Northern Irish, like real like sort of blunt in both like a sort of accent and her approach and everything. Yeah. And she never ever said everything's going to be all right. And that was crucial because... Friends say that and family say that and all the rest of it. But it gives you a more realistic expectation. But she never said, she did, she went, and she goes, oh yeah, that is really bad, isn't it? Oh, that's awful. And like, it's like, yeah. And you're there going, but it'll be okay, yeah? She's like, maybe. But yeah, she she never strayed into that. But so she, she was absolutely incredible. And like, yeah. So, you know, I had people helping out. The NHS is incredible. I've never sort of, you know, I, yeah, that's it. The NHS is incredible. And, if uh, if our government lets it die or makes it undernourished, then 
I mean, it's a disaster. <laughs> no, I, not I to agree end with on you. a sort of really dark note. But and like... on that note, we'll wrap it. <laughs> no, I'm not... We're going to have to say something else now. We can't end on. Don't let. But the it really NHS is the most amazing <laughs> thing, and you know, like it, it, this coincided with the whole clap for carers thing as well, which I mean was essentially bollocks. It was the government just trying to distract us from, you know, not funding the NHS. Yeah, you know, precisely. But it did mean that while I was going through all of this, every Thursday I went to my window with like a pot and a wooden spoon and banged them together, and that that always felt that was always quite. I don't know, it felt really, really special in a way. I mean, it seems really silly in hindsight. What a strange period of time we lived through. Know, it was very surreal. Once a it? week at 6 pm, we'd go and stand at the window and yeah. cheer for these <laughs> heroes. It feels truly bizarre now. But at the time, it just felt like the most important thing in the world. It really did. It really kind of unified the nation, though, didn't it? It kind yeah. of it brought us all together that we're getting through this horrible period as one. Yeah. We're not all alone, even though it feels like we are. The first time I did it, I went and opened that that window, and uh, yeah, just you could just hear it ringing out of every house. It's like bloody hell! It was an amazing, like such a bizarre but amazing thing that happened. Like we were we we moved to Southend in November 2019, so we were kind of similar. Like yeah. we'd not long been in the area, so we didn't really know anyone or anything, and we had that because we were right in the centre, so we had the whole of South End around us going. And it was that really like nice heartwarming moment where like, yeah, oh, the the whole country's come together to support these absolute legends that are saving lives throughout the land. Yeah. And I think it's a moment that hopefully will continue in the consciousness and we'll continue to appreciate what happened through that period. And the difficulty in the modern age is that everything's so fleeting because it's oh what's next, what's next, what's next? because everything's on a little box in your hand. It's like, what's the new thing? What's the new thing? And if we could kind of hope for one thing to remain in the consciousness, it would be that we all came together over this horrible period of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, we have got it in us. Yeah, we, we can be good people from time to time, and we can come together as one one nation to kind of go, right, this is shit. It's out of all of our control. We can't blame it on the left or the right or the Tories or the Conservative. We can't do any of that. We just have to get through this together. And there was a lot of cock-ups, but we are, a lot of us are still here. Yeah. And a lot of us came together to celebrate that. Um, which, hopefully, is what we take away from that moment, rather than the, the bad things that happened and the balls that were dropped, so to speak. Quite literally, yeah. <laughs> That was not intended to be that joke. <laughs> it really was. You smiled as you delivered it. I kind of, I, as it was coming out of my mouth, I realised that joke was in there. I was like, oh, I can't stop now. It's there. Be proud of yourself. You're so proud. Um, well, on that note, oh, it's been an hour and 45, which is a good effort on a podcast. Like, yeah. It's, I pity anyone who made it this far, to be honest. The, the thing I love about these podcasts is most of the time I don't really know who I'm talking to. Like We've met briefly on Sunday at Coffees and Cars and we've had a bit of exchange over Instagram, but it's not like I know you at all, really. And for us to be able to sit here for an hour and 45 and not have that awkward like, so what do we talk about? It's really kind of a nice thing and the the best part about this podcast is that that always happens. I think I've probably had maybe one or two where I've got to really put some effort into, right, let's keep this train going and they're probably the shortest two episodes that are on here um, and it's one of those where you're kind of going, right, 
we're nearly at the hour. If we can just make it to an hour, <laughs> we'll be all right. Um, and it's really nice that these conversations act as an example for other people to go, look, us as two effective strangers have managed an hour and 45 of conversation. We've talked about cars and magazines and going on road trips and cancer and lockdown and mental health. And I made a terrible joke about losing a bollock and we're still, we've made it all the way through and it wasn't that hard. No. If we can do it, anybody can do it. And that's the whole point. Like conversation and talking doesn't need to be scary and it doesn't need to be kind of, there doesn't need to be that fear of being judged for having talked to someone. You can have these conversations and it is okay and it should be normal. So on that note, I'm going to hit stop record there. Thank you so much. And probably the only thing for me to ask really is where can people find you? Oh, that's a good point because I've just uh, said that I don't use social media much. I am still on there. I guess Instagram is probably the best place. It's the one that I kind of look at more frequently. And I think I'm just at Stephen Dolby. Let me... Uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll pull it up because that's where we've been chatting, so... I don't think there's an underscore in there. That shows you how attentive I am, doesn't it? There isn't an underscore. So Stephen with a PH, Dobby, Dobby with an IE at the end, which I'll probably put in here anyway. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much. And thank you no, for. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Tolerating that awful joke at the end. I kind of feel guilty now. But at the same time, a little bit smug. Yeah. Um, but there, yeah, I'll stop recording now. Mm-hmm.